Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hills, and I'm here today with Christopher Blythe to talk about Volume 7 of the document series of the Joseph Smith Papers. Christopher James Blythe completed a Ph.D. in American Religious History from Florida State University, an M.A. in History from Utah State University, and B.A. degrees in Religious Studies and Anthropology from Utah State University and Texas A&M University, respectively. He is currently revisiting his dissertation, Vernacular Mormonism, the Development of Christian Apocalyptic Among Latter-day Saints, into a book manuscript, which I got to read. And as soon as it is published, we will be visiting with Christopher again. So hello, Chris. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing wonderful. Great. Give us an overview. What's in Volume 7? What time period does it cover? In Volume 7, we start in September of 1839, and we work our way all the way to January of 1841, which is a wonderful, pivotal time for the saints and a difficult time. We follow the saints' arrival in Nauvoo, going through their sicknesses and adversity as they're preparing a place where eventually they'll plan the building of a temple and will become the central gathering place of the saints throughout the world. Throughout the time period, we have Joseph Smith's visit to Washington, D.C., including his extremely important visit with Martin Van Buren as he tries to get redress for the saints from their adversities and persecutions in Missouri. Another great event that we have in the volume is the Apostles' Mission to Great Britain, where nine of the 12 apostles travel across the Atlantic and more than double the church in size, turns the city of Nauvoo into a city of a thousand saints to a city of maybe 15,000 by 1845. In these pages, we also have the introduction of baptism for the dead. So I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this volume. That was pivotal. That was a changing moment in the church, I think. I think that's right. Yeah, absolutely. This is the foundation of temple work, at least modern temple work as we know it now. One thing that struck me as I read the volume and also your dissertation, soon-to-be book, is that the saints were so millenarian. According to the introduction of the volume, the saints were building Nauvoo as a light to the world and a refuge from the disasters preceding the second coming. How did that affect the enterprise from the get-go? Excellent. Nauvoo is so special because unlike Jackson County, Missouri, or Adam Amon, or even Palmyra, New York, Nauvoo wasn't important because of some great event that occurred in the past. And this wasn't where Adam had held great councils and where Jesus Christ would appear in the last days. It wasn't the New Jerusalem, but it was a place that the saints envisioned that they could build a temple where Jesus Christ would visit, where keys would be restored, that his ordinances were restored. Nauvoo became the place that Joseph believed was a place of safety for saints everywhere. This message that they need to gather Sometimes, in one of the documents we'll speak of today, Martha Corey's report of his July 1839 sermon, Joseph emphasizes that this is, in a sense, Zion, just like other Zions. By Nauvoo, Joseph is using the term Zion not just to refer to a specific city, but to all of North and South America. And here is a place the saints are going to gather and take protection from the world. The apostles will talk about the great anxiety of the saints in Great Britain to come out and join the saints in Nauvoo. And Joseph insists that the adversities and the sicknesses that they're facing are all worth it for this millenarian vision. On one hand, it gives the saints a sense of purpose, but it also lifts their spirits. This is the goal, and their message is to the whole world. So if we take a section which is in our volume here, section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Here is the building of a city that even kings and nobility around the world are going to notice. 
again, in that Martha Corey sermon, Joseph says that they're even going to take pleasure trips to visit and think about the things of Zion and Nauvoo, a beautiful vision of what could have been. I also love the hope and adversity that we see in individuals that sacrificed a great deal for the upbuilding of Nauvoo. There's a letter written by one of my favorite writers of this period, a woman named Sally Randall, and she writes home to her non-member parents and talks about the loss of her son. I believe his name is George. There's a great quote from one of her letters. She says, Oh, what a trying time that was to me, and it seems yet that I cannot be reconciled to have it so, but I have no doubt but he is better off than he would be here and will come forth in the first resurrection, which will be in this generation according to our faith. His father has been baptized for him, and what a glorious thing it is that we believe and receive the fullness of the gospel as it is preached now and can be baptized for all of our dead friends and save them as far back as we can get any knowledge of them. I love that, this sense that the resurrection, you could have a hope that the diversities we're facing now are going to be taken care of then. And also the idea that we can do something, baptism for the dead, really has this beautiful millinery vision. Joseph is just beginning to hint to the saints. You see this throughout the volume of the experience he had in the Kirtland Temple of meeting the prophet Elijah, fulfilling that prophecy in Malachi of restoring these keys that will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. They had a great enthusiasm, despite coming from horrific circumstances. Here they were refugees coming from Missouri. They had to leave their property. They had only the shirts on their back, a lot of them. And they were sick from exposure in the winter. Yet, though this was maybe the fourth official gathering place, they'd had Colesville, they'd had Kirtland, two places in Missouri, and now Nauvoo, this is it. We are going to be living here when Jesus Christ comes again. I think that's right. I think that is the sense the saints have. I don't think that the saints have replaced Jackson County, Missouri in their minds. I think they still have this hope that they'll return there. But as you read some of the documents here, Joseph isn't pointing them back to Missouri. They're, we're starting anew, and we need to focus on building up Nauvoo and the temple here. And all of those prophecies can take place and at least have their start here in Illinois. Since you're a volume editor, I figured you would know the documents that were most interesting or most important. So I gave you an assignment to pick out some of your favorites that we'll be going over right now. Joseph Smith gets out of jail. The saints get out of Missouri. They get some land purchased by land speculators. We call it wetlands now. I grew up in the Midwest. We called it swamps. (laughs) (laughs) Cattails and mosquitoes. The first thing that they have to contend with is sickness. They call it the og. The agu. The agu, which is malaria. And there's a lot of the superstitions left over from the 16, 1700s, even from, you could say, New Testament times where they're thinking that these illnesses are a curse somehow on some people. Modern medicine isn't quite up to snuff yet. They do Thomasonian medicine, which mm-hmm. is basically being an herbalist, kind of. Yeah. In this climate... What does Joseph Smith come out and say to the people about disease and righteousness? I think the context you set up there is fantastic. So there is a lot of beliefs. In fact, the saints for the next several decades will firmly believe that disease is brought about by evil spirits. And I think that is an essential part of what's going on in Nauvoo that there's a belief that there's a curse on the saints. But there's also a sense that great disease is a fulfillment of prophecies from the book of Revelation. Pestilence and disease are essential for any of the biblical visions and Book of Mormon visions of the last days, including the Doctrine and Covenants earlier revelations Joseph had that there'd be this great scourge. Early as 1832, the saints had pointed out and said cholera was this great last days scourge. 
So when they get to Nauvoo, they're experiencing a different type of illness than they've had previously. They really haven't had to face the brunt of cholera except in Zion's camp. Now there's great sickness affecting everyone. And the saints have already come out of persecution. Is this God upset with them? Are they facing a judgment? Joseph is going to say some uh, really important things in a sermon given on September 29th, 1839. Although it's a short document that we have, it's one of the most important sermons in this collection. One of the things he says is, it is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer. Speaking of the judgments at the time of the second coming, for all flesh is subject to suffer, and quote, the righteous shall hardly escape. Still many of the saints will escape, for the just shall live by faith. Yet many of the righteous shall fall a prey to disease, to pestilence, by reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God, so that it is an unhallowed principle to say that such and such have transgressed because they have been preyed upon by disease or death, for all flesh is subject to death. And the Savior has said, judge not lest ye be judged. Sickness is everywhere, and the last thing the saints need to be doing is thinking that the unrighteous among them are those that are suffering, because that's certainly not the case. Joseph himself is taken down with the chills, the early signs of the agu malaria, just like many others, and the early encampment that would become Nauvoo. We could read this and say, of course, because we know that. Right. But it was really quite a stark departure from their ingrained Christian religious traditions, wasn't it? I think that's right. More so even their own thinking. So what happened at Zion's camp when everybody got sick? Joseph said it was a scourge. This was something that had affected the saints, and it was a last day's scourge that would affect the world. But upon the house of the Lord, the suffering will begin, and so the judgment will begin. They expected to feel a taste of that. But even then, Joseph said the scourge was because of murmuring in the camp. Well, that's very different from these refugees that have sacrificed everything to follow Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, try to follow his prophet, who are sacrificing everything to gather and remain part of this persecuted people. Joseph's message is then not that Heavenly Father is unhappy with them, but that they need to be patient in adversity and that Heavenly Father can heal, that through this adversity, great things can come about. So maybe he was attacking maybe that some people had some dark hidden secrets that were making them sick. And he wanted to say, no, you are good, you are righteous, the Lord is pleased with you. That's specifically what he's addressing. He's like, don't think they have some dark, deep secret. And that's why he said, judge ye not, that ye be not judged. I think that's right. Christians have been reminded of this all the way. Is it John chapter 10 about the blind man, right? Is it the blind man whose sin made him blind, or was it his parents? And Jesus, of course, says, no, this is for the power of God to be revealed. And actually, a lot of the early stories of Nauvoo point us in this direction. You see an anxiety, even in the way people would write about the sicknesses of their loved ones. They did think the devil was active in Nauvoo and active in sickness. As a modern Latter-day Saint, I would say the devil can use all sorts of tactics to prevent us from keeping on track. And so I don't think it's unrealistic, even if someone else might say it's superstitious, that the devil might impact our health. But the saints certainly believe that. And you could see in their writings an anxiety where people would say, there was nothing unrighteous with my wife when she became ill. It was because she devoted herself so completely to others that she left herself susceptible to illness or things like that. So people are constantly even being self-conscious in their writings to address that. But in this early moment, everybody becomes ill. And just like in John 10, the message of those stories is the prophet. Here he is. He pulls himself up out of his sickbed, prays, goes and visits Elijah Fordham, who is ill and tells him to rise and be whole. And then they go out and they perform blessings throughout the body of refugees as many many of them are able to be healed. Not all of them, of course. Otherwise, we wouldn't have sermons like this one here, but many of them. Oh, and we have the famous story of the handkerchief, too, which Fiona Givens calls a very Catholic moment. I like that. 
it is a Catholic bobit that Catholics still use material objects of sanctity, and we've grown away from that somewhat. But it's this great New Testament moment too, right? Paul is the first to take a handkerchief and send someone out to give a blessing through it. I think it's interesting. Some of these stories of the handkerchief, Joseph sends it to non-members who are ill around. And I kind of think that's fun. So those that have joined the church, the prophet visits directly. And those that haven't yet, he sends messengers with this object that could heal them as well. We have so few things written in Emma Smith's hands. And we have a letter in this volume, a really interesting letter. I gained quite a bit of insight into that with what Emma dealt with day to day, her perceptions, her involvement in the church. Poor Emma, she probably didn't know that we'd be reading this later. She (laughs) thought it was just for Joseph's eyes. Absolutely. (laughs) So what insight did you get from the letter? I think that's so important. I'm not sure how many saints realize that we don't have a lot of materials from Emma. Emma is an important figure who is mentioned in plenty of diaries, but if I want to find her voice, it is tough to find. So this is a beautiful letter, and the reason we have it is because Joseph's in Washington, D.C. at the time. And we do. We get that taste. I don't remember the artist's name. It's not Gurkha, unless it is. Beautiful image we have of Emma Smith I believe done in the 1970s, where she's sitting on the on the shore of the Mississippi, the homestead is behind her, and that image that Emma is being depicted as is bringing a handkerchief, going around and curing for the ill, um, and we have this this image of her. Well, the 6th December 1839 letter gives us that image. She's writing Joseph, and the thing on her mind is the health of the saints, and the health of her own children. So she writes, Dear husband, in the midst of the confusion of my own family and Elder Hyde's, obviously Elder Hyde has come and visited, and the remains of Sierra Fisk's family. Here's a family that's lost the husband and a newborn in the not too distant past. I shall endeavor to write having omitted writing so long already on account of so much confusion and some sickness that I very much fear that my letter will not arrive in Washington in time for you to receive it. Emma's been busy. And then she turns her attention to her own family. She says, I broke Frederick's fever the same day you left, and he has been well ever since. Joseph, that is young Joseph, has had the chill fever, what we're calling the agu, twice the first time he bled at the nose until he was very weak. He has not been as well ever since as he was before, but he's now getting better. She goes through and she talks about others that have visited the Hydes and how their family has all been ill, staying in the homestead. Mr. Mulholland was brought here the day after you left home and suffered extremely until Sunday morning when his spirit left its suffering tenement for a better mansion than he had here. He lost his speech the first evening he was here and never spoke another word while he lived goes through and mentions others that have been ill. Emma has been so focused on the saints that are suffering. So we have this image of Emma who is out caring for the saints. And this isn't just uh, an image we've given her over time. It's not a mythologized Emma. This is really who this woman was. Wonderful insight into who she is. It's not like the saints have gone to the banks of the Mississippi and can just focus on getting healthy and getting started. They still have those that want to cause them problems. We've had visits in the roundabout region from Missouri sheriffs who are still out to make arrests, which Emma writes explicitly about to Joseph. And then she ends her letter, and I think this tells us something about her state of mind here. She says, There is great anxiety manifest in this place for your prosperity, and the time lingers long that is set for your return. The day is waiting, and the night is approaching so fast that I must reserve my better feelings until I have a better chance to express them. I think Emma has given so completely of herself that she is exhausted. She's physically exhausted, as you imagine, and she's emotionally drained, having cared for so many people which I think is the experience of early Davu. If you're not sick, then you're tending to the sick. I got that impression as well, that she was really tired. 
But the ending reminded me somewhat of Joseph's letter to her in 1832, where he chastised her and he said, everybody else is writing mushy-gushy letters to their husband and you're not. (laughs) So I think that was her thing at the end to say, I'm tired, I know you want mushy-gushy, I'll get it to you. I love it. Yes, that's probably absolutely right. Very good. As a wife, I commiserate. I thought there was something humorous in there, too. You didn't read the part about Robert Thompson being appointed in James Mulholland's stead, and she makes a little editorial comment there. We would even say a snide remark. Mm -hmm. She's like, well, there's not going to be much going on there. Right. (laughs) Robert Thompson has not done anything at all in the business. Neither do I think he will. Yeah, so she's not afraid to share her feelings (laughs) with Joseph about... Who's appointed to different callings. I was surprised that they had this fear still of the Missourians. The Missourians and the, I I don't know how to say this right, the citizens of Illinois were having a little war skirmish and they were within 30 miles of Nauvoo. And this gave them actual fear that the Missourians were going to go all the way and do something bad and horrible to them. Absolutely. Even after Joseph's death, this idea that the Missourians are eager to get revenge in their minds for the experience of Missouri is ongoing, constantly in the background of Joseph's mind. Even when the state of Illinois, I mean, the reason they've come to Illinois is because Iowa won't promise Joseph protection. Even when Illinois is on the saint's side, the saints still have a sense that they're not entirely safe, particularly Joseph is not entirely safe from reprisals from Missouri. We have at least three incidences where sheriffs or you know the equivalent of bounty hunters have come out to Nauvoo to bring Joseph to face charges in Missouri. Okay, let's talk about the Twelve's mission to Great Britain. Pretty much everyone knows the story of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball getting on the back of the wagon with malaria and heading off to Great Britain without purse or script. Yes. I think it's in every manual. Mm-hmm. But... Here we get some detail from Heber C. Kimball. I always wondered, how do you make it from Pioneer, Illinois to Great Britain with no money, just relying on the charity of whomever you come across? Some of them are members, some of them are non-members. And Heber C. Kimball tells us how in a little more detail than I probably would have liked. He also tells us how much snow fell on the ground. I thought if I had gotten this letter in the mail, which is 15, eight and a half by 11 pages in the (laughs) documents, I would have skimmed it, you know, not lying, you know, unless I was really bored, I would have skimmed that letter. It is long and detailed, but it certainly answers our questions. What did you find interesting about the letter? I love that. I think you're thinking right on the same lines that I was. This is one of the documents that I personally edited. In fact, when I was hired by Joseph Smith Papers, this was the first document they gave to me. And it was so long, and I fell in love with it. So Heber C. Kimball has already gone to Great Britain, and he's returned. And he is eager to go back. He leaves with Brigham Young. And months after, he writes a lengthy letter to Joseph. And you're absolutely right. He narrates everything. So there's a sense that he thinks the prophet would be interested in the day-to-day. I love this letter because it actually does tell us a sort of route that these missionaries to Great Britain would take from Nauvoo, every place they would stop. Who are the people that you knew would take care of the missionaries? And we do. We learn exactly how going on a mission without purse or script worked, which meant you do who would take care of you and the mission wasn't just about these two or 16 missionaries this was about an entire church that's lifting them up and supporting them along the way he gives us details about who would put him in the wagon and take him 20 miles in one direction and who would let them sleep a couple days and so on and so forth heber c kimball's journal is a good document 
but not as good as a letter like this, where he really is diving in and doing something of what he would have done in a more detailed journal, where he's telling us that he stopped, and uh, I felt bad this day. And the next day, my spirits were lifted, so I went to the neighboring town and I preached. They're not in a hurry to get to Great Britain either. So we see that they're doing side sermons and spreading the gospel as they go. I also really love a passage on page 285. Here we have the saints. The apostles have already arrived in Great Britain. For me, this would be the highlight that everyone would be interested in. What's it like? What are the saints like in Great Britain? Remember, Heber C. Kimball started this thing rolling left. Now he came back. Uh, Have things changed? What is it like? He says, you would be astonished, talking to Joseph, to witness the anxiety which is manifested for the well-being of the saints in America and for your own welfare and your counselors and for the high council and all the elders, bishops, and officers. And also to see the interest manifested among them for the saints in America while we have related to them their sufferings during the late persecution. And notwithstanding, we have kept nothing back of the sufferings of the saints in America, yet it is astonishing to see the universal anxiety there is manifest amongst the states here to get away to the land of promise and help build up Zion. As soon as we can possibly get them baptized, they immediately begin to want to go to America, for they declare that that is Zion. Many of the saints are realizing the gifts of the Spirit. Many speak in tongues, others interpret. Some prophesy and others have the gift of healing. There are great miracles associated with this early moment in the church in Great Britain, just like there are with these early moments in Nauvoo. And Heber C. Kimball wants to tell Joseph that these things are happening. Joseph is now a prophet to, and of course, prophets the entire world, but a leader to a church that has a large body in Nauvoo, but an even larger body that he's never seen, never met. And Heber C. Kimball wants to give him a taste of what they're like. Pretty powerful, I think, when we read it with that in mind. The letter also shows us Kimball's travels, but once they get there, the plans to spread the gospel. England's a starting point that's going to bring the gospel throughout Europe. They're going to go to Scotland. They're going to go to Ireland. They're going to visit the East Indies. There's great just possibility for what they've started and had so much success doing sharing the gospel of Great Britain. Would you say the saints were collectively holding their breath as their second summer in Nauvoo approached <laughs> and their fears of malaria were still there? Yeah. They're not paranoid because malaria is going to come back every summer. They don't realize that it's related to the mosquitoes there, but every summer it's going to come back. Things have gotten better. So even as the population grows, the number of people dying of malaria each summer stays about constant, sometimes dipping, sometimes going up a little bit, but the population is growing so much. So we know the saints are, as they get rid of the water that's made Nauvoo a wilderness in Joseph's terms. They are making things better, but they are absolutely scared, and they're losing family members every year. So what did Joseph tell them to do to avoid sickness? Because we know it's not a curse. We know they're not evil. He's told us that the year before. That's right. He has a slightly different tone, I think, when he speaks to the saints on July 30, 1840. He tells them to be careful of backbiting. He tells them to avoid evil speaking of other church members. Don't gossip. Don't speak against the Lord's anointed. Don't speak against leaders. He tells them that when they do become ill, they should fast. They should pray. They should seek help from the elders. They should seek the elders to be anointed with oil. How you could prevent illness becomes so important in Nauvoo that Joseph will eventually even teach them that baptism could be used as a way to heal the sick. That's um, right. Rebaptism. Yeah. So at one point when Emma's ill, Joseph takes her to the river and baptizes her seven times. At some sense, you might think there's a desperation to try to heal the saints. I felt like we were stepping back a little bit. Okay. We weren't progressing with, hey, we're not evil. Only it's replaced with, well, maybe this priesthood power, if if we baptize them seven times, then they'll get better. 
I think there's a sense of faith in the saints. So I don't know what mechanism might have worked, but I believe in the power of faith. And um, the saints certainly did. Baptism of health is practiced all the way up into the Salt Lake Temple, right? So when people would visit the endowment house or so on, they would often go with the hope of being cured of ailment. Even today, of course, we, we would go to the temple for sick baby and and often it's not unusual to hear prayers of the temple for those in the company that might be ill. Saints did come to the temple with that hope. And Joseph will sometimes hit on it. There's great articles from Jonathan Stapley and Chris Wright that dive into this. And we'll even talk about how Joseph seems to be relating baptism to health with the waters. Is it the waters of Bethesda where the angels will rustle the waters and people will be healed? And Jesus tells one sick man, or is it 10, that they're to go off and bathe in these waters. There might be a sense that it's superstitious, but it relates to the same principle of faith that starts at the beginning of Christianity and goes to the present. I also noticed that he was a little bit sensitive about sedition. (laughs) He sure was. (laughs) And this is before he's had any vicious attacks in Nauvoo, really. He hasn't even started marrying plurally. We don't have the brouhaha with John C. Bennett, but he comes out strong. Don't criticize me. I think you're right. And that specific part of this letter does revert us to maybe sickness is something that you've done wrong. So that is, in a sense, stepping back to a previous message. I appreciate the way we periodize Joseph Smith's life, where we start out New York and Kirtland, we talk about the Missouri period, and then we talk about Nauvoo. I think this is useful, but it's also important for us to remember these aren't like clear breaks. He's remembering the apostasy in Kirtland. He remembers how even those that were his dearest friends have turned their back on the church, who have said really mean things about him and have testified against him at court. So I think when Joseph hears a hint of dissatisfaction, and you can imagine if you've brought your family and everyone's getting sick, there would be some dissatisfaction. I think not murmuring in early Nauvoo, it would take someone of greater character than I. Oh, me too. Right. I've seen the pictures and drawings. Right. So I think there probably was that, and Joseph does. He remembers things before and is really nervous that could happen again. And of course... It does. A lot of times when we go to state conference, we take a notebook and we take notes of what the speakers are saying. Or during general conference, we tweet what we've heard. Sure. Back in the day in Nauvoo, people were showing up to discourses with their notebooks as well. Martha Jane Knowlton Carre is one of those people who like to take notes from discourses. The interesting thing in this volume is that you have two copies of the same discourse from the same person. What do we learn from these two different copies? The great thing about Joseph Smith's papers, recording of discourses, that I've thought all along, even before I worked there, was that they include every possible copy, even when there are only slight differences. I think there's some really good differences in these two copies. So. Martha came to conference, she recorded notes, and they were really good notes. We think one possibility is that our first version here is her original notes. It might not be, it might be a second draft, but we think it's the original. And then she goes through, and in this second notebook, which was made from this copy a couple years later, she goes in and she fixes a few things. She completes sentences, she even includes a few ideas that we don't see in the original. I wish we had more copies of this specific sermon because there was so much meat and excitement in it. This sermon not only tells us about the millenarian view Joseph Smith has for the saints in Nauvoo, but also the role the saints will have in blessing the nation in the last days. It was pretty fascinating. I want to point out a few things, and I'll point them out from her original notes that are are pretty exciting about this document. He talks about stakes. Nauvoo is a stake of Zion. There's other stakes that are going to be completed. Joseph reveals in this sermon, he says, the redemption of Zion is the salvation of this country, which is North and South America. 
He talks about how stakes will be built throughout North and South America. Here he talks about to all of those who are trying to come to Nauvoo. He says, let them come and partake of the poverty of Nauvoo freely. And those who partake of our poverty shall be greatly blessed, yea, exceedingly. For if they come in times of prosperity, we'll put on their long face pharisaical visages or visages and blow us up. And this proclamation goes forth from this hour. Everything you can bring and build the house of God. Here we notice already there's some errors in the way she wrote it. But she's saying, Joseph said, come embrace what's happening here. Obviously, we're going to have adversity, but we're going to work together as a people to build a house of God here. And there'll be others. There was a certain cadence to the sermon as well. 12 this, 12 that, 12 this. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's with the 12s? But apparently it must have been on Joseph's mind that day because everything came in 12s. Yes. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about a parable of 12 olive trees that will be planted. And Joseph, at this moment, we don't see this repeated. He thinks that there's an essential place for 12 stakes to be built throughout North and South America. He's envisioning this. Maybe it's the the image of the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I don't know. But Joseph is convinced that it's not just one city that will be built, but several cities a vision that the saints will pick up again decades later after they've colonized parts of the West. I love this. So this is a sermon given before Joseph's wonderful January revelation in which he talks about the Nauvoo house and nobility coming from around the world to visit and stay there and contemplate the things of Zion. But already he's saying, then will kings queens, rulers come and help build up Zion, pointing to a prophecy Isaiah once had. Reasoning can't help themselves. Therefore, go to with your might. Build and you shall inherit it long and be blessed. And the rising generation shall awake the nations, make kingdoms tremble, and the earth shake to the center. And God will bless the great rulers and cast a vote. This is so great. Cast a vote against Van Buren, the president that's upset Joseph so much just recently. Jerusalem must be built up, Zion also, before the coming of Christ. And as Joseph would often repeat during this period, this wasn't going to happen tomorrow. So he says this will take near 60 years. When we jump forward into the second account that we have of Martha's recording or revisions to her earlier notes on the sermon, she gives a prophecy, that is, she records a prophecy that Joseph gave in its earliest form that was shared again by people like Eliza R. Snow, Brigham Young, several other saints, and then quoted constantly by the prophet Ezra Taft Benson, for example, of the saints having some role in protecting, preserving the United States Constitution. In recent years, we haven't necessarily liked the implication that there's a prophecy that Mormons will step forth and save the Constitution. There's a name for it, like the White Horse Prophecy yeah. or something. The White Horse Prophecy is a prophecy written by a guy named Edward Rushton in maybe 1890. And he took elements of different prophecies and shoved them all together in this epic prophecy that he promoted and shared with individuals. But the statement about the Constitution hanging by a thread appears all over the place. Today, many Latter-day Saints will say, oh, that's folklore, that's the White Horse Prophecy. But the White Horse Prophecy just has this element that exists completely independent from it. And we see it in its earliest version here. Of course, at Nauvoo, this prophecy is in part at least an impetus for the Council of 50. So, Well, definitely, because in the Council of 50, they already think that the Constitution has crashed and burned. Let's make a new one. Excellent. So they're actually fulfilling the prophecy. I know, yes. We, uh, <laughs> we need to write a new Constitution that protects people's rights, minority yes. groups. Here they give the quote. It's interesting. It's different than the hanging by the thread. It says, and when the Constitution is upon the brink of ruin, this people will be the staff upon which the nation shall lean, and they shall bear the Constitution away from the very verge of destruction. Kind of fun. It's interesting. So when Joseph Smith Papers editors have pointed to this sermon, some people have been very annoyed because we now know it's so common to say, 
for even historians to say, wait a second, that's a later interpolation of Joseph Smith's thought. You mentioned this millenarian view again, and that's what I got throughout volume seven, which was really helpful to me because like you said, we've periodized the church. And sometimes I look at Nauvoo and I go, why would they ever agree to do that? (laughs) And I'm talking about polygamy. And I thought, you know, if you really did think the world was going to end in two years, maybe some of these things would have more resonance. And you could say, oh, for a couple of years, I don't know. That was just one impression I had, right. just trying to get into their heads a little bit more from these documents. I think that's great. The, the millenarian mindset always isn't pointing you towards how terrible the world is that's not what it does it doesn't make you if you're one of the saints you're not thinking i'm scared of last day's judgments you're thinking there's great rewards right around the corner so this keeps you a sense of optimism okay let's go back to the 12 in england we don't have a copy if joseph wrote heber c kimball back right his letter's kind of one i don't know how you'd write him back Number one, do you have to write 15 pages back so he'll feel even? Um, We're doing great here. Good job you got there. It didn't really have any questions in it. But Joseph finally did respond to the letters that he received from some of the 12 in England, and he just did a collective letter. What questions did he answer in that letter? You know, he answered all sorts of questions questions and he didn't just stick to them i love the beginning to this letter where he says here before me are various letters or several letters that have been sent by members of the 12 that i should have written back to before this and maybe what really has pushed him to get to writing is a september 8th 1840 letter from brigham young and willard richards which is another one of these gems that appears in volume seven it includes a whole list of questions and captures the mindset of the apostles We have another letter like this from Orson High that does very similar, gives a list of questions, and at different times from Parley P. Pratt, who does the same thing. The apostles miss having access to their prophet, and so there's a great deal of things they want to discuss. So here's some of it. Quote, we have heard by the by that brothers Joseph and Hiram are coming to England next season. Is this good news true? May we look for you? So is Joseph going to get on a boat himself? Obviously, this would have been an exciting thing to occur in church history, but it doesn't happen. And one of the things Joseph needs to address to say, nope, I have a city I have to run. Many other questions. Shall we gather up all the saints we can and come over with them next spring? Have we done right in printing a hymn book? Are we doing right in printing the Book of Mormon? Are we doing right in printing the Book of Mormon? Are we doing right in staying here and leaving our families to be a burden to the church? Or in other words, are you guys still taking care of our families? We have sent some of our paper to America the Millennial Star. Is this right? When the Book of Mormon is completed, will it be best for anyone to carry any of them to America? Shall we print the Doctrine and Covenants here or not? Or will the Doctrine and Covenants be printed and go to the nations as it now is or not? Or will it be revised and printed for the nations? Shall we send all we can to America next season and stay here ourselves? What is the Lord's will concerning Brother Richard? Shall he take his family to America next season? Or shall he tarry here with them while longer? What shall he do? And this is by far my favorite question. We have lately visited a museum where we saw an Egyptian mummy on the headstone, etc. are many ancient and curious characters, and we asked the privilege of copying them for translation, but have not received an answer yet. Shall we copy them and send them to you for translation? Wouldn't that be amazing? So we know Joseph's excited about the Book of Abraham, and we are too. Will you see if there's anything on this headstone? Finally, brethren, How long must we be deprived of the company of our dear brethren whom we love for this work's sake? And we feel it is our privilege to love those who are willing to lay down their lives for the brethren. How long are we going to need to stay in Great Britain running this mission? Lots of questions. Joseph responds to almost all of them. He does not respond to the question about translating Egyptian from the museum there. I think he still has a lot to do on the Book of Abraham already, so probably isn't looking for more characters to translate. But he addresses lots of these just everyday maintenance questions about the church in Great Britain. I think one of the most fascinating things is that Joseph tells them about baptism for the dead. The apostles have left. 
They've heard rumors of baptism of the dead from letters from their wives, but they have not actually heard about it from the prophet himself. They haven't been there at the recent general conference where Joseph announced it to the saints at large. And so now we have him breaking narrow baptism of the dead for the apostles, but not for the apostles to teach it. This is something that's only to be practiced in Nauvoo. Joseph makes it clear. And so when this letter's published in the Millennial Star for the British saints, the apostles remove that portion of the letter and say, here's an element we don't want you guys focused on. We see that repeated at various times in the church, that certain things are kept private until they can be fully revealed. We see that there in the 15 December letter. Let's talk briefly about Revelation in Nauvoo. You pinpointed one revelation, which is now DNC 124. I'm not going to take the time to go into the details of the revelation. You mentioned briefly earlier that it's basically about the Nauvoo house, who will visit it, who's supposed to contribute to it. I was fascinated when the editors noted that not many revelations from the Illinois period made it into the DNC, which is not to say that the Nauvoo revelations were less relevant because we all know those first 17, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hit and miss whether they are applicable to everybody's lives. Why do you think this one made it? Section 124 is crucial. It is by far, minus section 132, the longest revelation Joseph's giving this period. And it is the command to build the temple. The saints are going to focus on this revelation. I mean, it's one he wants them all to know of. Some scholars have talked about Joseph no longer writing in form, like not having as many revelations in this period. And their argument is that he's become a greater preacher. So we have these wonderful sermons coming from the period. Maybe that replaces some of the earlier need for revelation in the same way. I don't know if I entirely buy into that argument. He had revelation because, like, even he'd go into the city council and he'd hastily write a revelation to Hiram Kimball. That one didn't make it in because Mm -hmm. that was not a pleasant one. But he was having revelation. I guess that was the point that I was making. Yeah. But someone had to decide, okay, what do we include? Yeah, I think that's great. So I still think it's a question about why the other revelations aren't there. We have an edition coming out in 1845, so it's possible these revelations could be collected and put in there. But I think Joseph and Davu's revelations are personal to individuals. It's true. Some of those show up in the early Doctrine and Covenants. And then they're also esoteric. So section 132, we're not going to add that until the 1870s because we're not going to add that. It's not something that we want out there in 1845. So we have a new Doctrine and Covenants, we'll put it in, but not until then. We're also not going to include the great revelations to the Council of Fifty. They're designed for a special group. We're not going to include the great revelation to Sarah Ann Whitney and Newell K. Whitney that talks about sealing. All of these have special, specific purposes, and they're not for the church as a body and certainly not to the world. I do think there are some documents, and even some of our reviewers of Documents Volume 7, that would have been in an earlier era included in the Doctrine and Covenants. So what I'm thinking about most is the instruction on priesthood that was given for the October 1840 conference. And this instruction of the priesthood, it reads a lot like section 84 or section 107. Joseph's going in and he's relating the priesthood. You'll remember these earlier sections talk about the lineage of the priesthood, talks about the powers of the priesthood. Joseph's doing that here in that section. In fact, we're even told that initially he's preparing the sermon and he wants to find something in the Joseph Smith translation, can't find it. And his scribe records that Joseph says, fine, I can receive it again. And he sits down and he dictates by the power of the spirit so much that the scribe says that I felt the power of it too, as they're yeah, recording Or this. maybe some more of his patriarchal blessings, which are essentially what those first chapters of the DNC are, behold the field is white. Mm-hmm. He dictated a beautiful revelation for Noel K. Whitney's clerk yes. that has many promises in it that were things that would still be applicable today, but not included. Yeah. 
I, th- I think it's a really interesting thing that's gone on, and you're right. Orson Pratt goes, and he wants to finish the Doctor of Covenants. He's really, our modern Doctor of Covenants, the Nauvoo period, is the genius of Orson Pratt. And these are, for the most part, not revelations, but they're excerpts from sermons or private conversations Joseph Smith had with the saints that Orson Pratt is trying to just find everything. Or even journal entries. Yeah, I think that's right. All taken and put together in our modern Doctrine and Covenants. I, I wonder what Joseph would have thought about that type of creating the more complete Doctrine and Covenants we have today um, and leaving out some of the others. Now, the great thing is that with the Joseph Smith papers, we now have access to all these revelations, and I hope one day we'll have some volume that has the complete revelations. And even if they're not canonized, we have access to that revelatory mind and mission of Joseph. To finish out this interview, I'd just like to ask you, as a graduate student, as a researcher now, how have the Joseph Smith papers helped you in your craft? The Joseph Smith papers represent a period of transparency. And so one thing's for sure, the documents published so far when I was still a graduate student, I love them. So many new insights to uh, the early church, not just releasing new documents, but releasing the context, a better context for early church history significantly helped my relations, my understanding of church history. I also gained a confidence to think that we can dig deeper into church history. And I love that there's, I love today, that the church is putting resources in a direction to say, go beyond the same story we've already told. It is wonderful to remember that as you dig into the corners of the Restoration, you're not finding scary, unexplainable, uncontextualized documents. You're learning things, and you're gaining a greater piece of this tapestry that was the early Restoration, and that has human elements. But as a believing Latter-day Saint and as a scholar, I believe that it gives us great evidence of a people who are learning from revelation and prophetic guidance. I also was greatly benefited by some of my current colleagues because now there were people hired that I could send questions to and didn't resent answering questions, but actually had the time and interest to respond and say, well, I think you're wrong. I think you're misreading this, Chris, and this is why. And they could point me to three sources. So for me, Joseph's papers... Uh, has been a great blessing, even before it gave me a paycheck. That's great. I like how you characterized it, giving us permission to go deeper. Sometimes we've been accused about exploring rabbit holes, and we're, we're like, no, this is just getting greater context and trying to understand these people so we can understand our history. Thank you for your time today, Christopher. And I look forward to interviewing you again when that book comes out. Oh, thanks so much, Laura. This has been fun. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.